Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in this church, that you allow us Sunday after Sunday to feast, have our souls repaired, stitched together after they've been broken and wounded by our own choices and circumstances that are sometimes hope-shattering. But you come here, Lord, and remind us of eternal trajectories that you have set us on before the foundation of the world. And thank you for the, this respite, this breath of celestial air, one foot on this earth, one foot on the shores of heaven. And thank you, Lord, that we will make it to the city of God. The ship will take us there because of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that we get to sing of your grace. We get to shout of it. We get to pray it and preach it. And I pray, Lord, that again today, deep within our souls, you would remind the most struggling sinner here you have loved him, you have loved her before the world was created. You knew what they would do, what they would choose, and you loved them anyway. I thank you for reminding me of that in the watch hours of the night last night. How comforting it was as you held me tight. Now hold others just as tight today through the preaching of the Word. And what we pray for ourselves, we pray for brothers and sisters around the world who are listening to and preaching the Word of God at risk of life. We love them. We know that some of them, Lord, will today breathe their last. Thank you that glory awaits them. May we run our race well and finish well as we pray for them to finish well also. By the power of the Holy Spirit... Move us one step forward to the finish line and let us have the privilege of sharing the hope with many along the way. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As you know, last week uh, I preached on um, one of the most breathtaking passages in the New Testament describing the origin and purpose of our of our salvation. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. There are a lot of churches in the United States in just the mere reading of those verses might result in that being the last Sunday that that pastor preaches. And I know that for pers from personal experience. 1996, I was about to get on an elevator at Greenville Memorial Hospital, and all I heard was one of my church members meeting me in the lobby there and saying, are you telling me I didn't choose God? I hadn't preached on Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, but I had preached on a verse where the Bible word predestination was used. So I knew he was miffed, and I responded to him as I respond to everybody since then. No, I didn't say that you didn't choose God. Your 
choosing of God is precious. Your choosing of God is very important. What I said is, you would have never chosen Him unless He would have first chosen you, according to the Scripture. So if you believe Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, then you believe the picture is that God saw you floating down a river of rebellion, headed to a waterfall of destruction, and God in His grace before the world was formed chose to take you out of that river to give you faith and to make your heart want Him. I've heard people say, well, if God chose me, then if, if that's the type of God there is that He chooses people, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. That's the type of rationale that you would say if you were a baby on the streets of Calcutta, lying in your filth, starving, helpless, squirming, about to die, and some wealthy, kind, kingly family comes and adopts you and raises you in the palace, allowing you to enjoy the privileges of being a part of that very blessed family. As a child, when you grow up in that family, are you going to respond, because you chose me when I was helpless as a baby, I hate you. So unfortunately, resentment against Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 is one of the responses that people give. However, last Sunday morning, because by God's grace, he's raising up a unique church in Spartanburg, my phone blew up with other responses. At 11.17 a.m., I don't even think we really finished with the service then, 11.17, I get this text, beautiful word today. It causes me to want to know this God who chose me even more. And that's what I received all week. And even this morning as I walked in, people were asking about or celebrating this God. This teaching is so precious and inspiring, yet so mysterious. I wanted to return to it to answer a few questions that were raised along the way this past week. So let me get some momentum just by Walking back into the text, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Very fun verse in Greek because it's the same word, praise and blessed. So it's blessed God who's blessed us. A reminder, we bless God verbally for the stuff he gives us. The only blessings we give to God are verbal acknowledgments of all the stuff He gives us. We never give Him anything other than verbal thank yous. Because He gives us all the blessings. The only thing we ever give Him are the thank yous. So, blessings to God verbally for all the stuff you give us. And what are the stuff He gives us? Well, every spiritual blessing. Well, what does that mean? Every spiritual blessing. This is what it means. It is precious. All that heaven has to offer is yours. All joy, all pleasure, all benefits, all privilege, all soul 
thrilling experiences for eternity are yours. <sighs> Simply because of your union with Christ. And these blessings in heaven extend all the way to the unspeakable end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, where we read verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I don't even know what to say about that verse. But this, when we talk about all spiritual blessings, there will come a day when you arrive in the city of God that you will be invited by the hand of Christ to get up and sit on the throne of Jesus Christ that should belong only to him. And he says, have a seat. Now, how do you know you're going to receive all these blessings? Because, verse 4, he chose you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So before the world was created, God saw that there was going to be a massive riot when he created earth, populated with mankind, there was going to be global rebellion against his supremacy. And he saw that we would be part of that riot, part of that rebellion, and he chose to take us out of that. And instead of our, our having a rebellious heart, he gave us a holy and blameless heart before the creation of the world. He chose to take rebellion out of us and put holiness and blamelessness in us. Holiness and blameless, sort of a positive and negative way of saying the same thing. Holy means to be sort of separate like Christ is separate. Blameless would be to be without defect. So before the world began, God chose to take you out of the riot and to move you Sunday after Sunday, after week after week, year after year, toward the city of God so that one day you will be defectless. That's pretty good to, to be going from being a rioter to defectless. No defects in you one day. Well, when you hear talk like that, you're probably saying, I don't think I'm going to make it because I'm so defective. How can I know I'm going to one day arrive defectless when I'm so defective? Well, Paul answers that again. In love, he predestined us for adoptions through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love, God predestined that you would enjoy everything that should have been given to Jesus, the only Son of God, alone. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every millisecond of your life, if you believe in the death of Christ for sins and the resurrection of, of, of Christ from the grave to prove he, he was who He said He was, Savior, if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ every second of your life, you need to think in terms, these two terms, God is my Father, Jesus is my brother. God is my Father, Jesus is my brother. Look how... This sonship carries over to Romans 8, testified by the Spirit, God is my Father, Jesus is my brother. 
The spirit you received, Romans 8, 15, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. If you, if you, if you can say this today, God, you're my father. That's the spirit doing that. It means you're saved. You're my father. Verse 17, now if we are children, if we can crowd Abba Father, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, which means Jesus is your brother, a significantly older brother, significantly big brother, but brother nonetheless. Everything that should belong to Jesus the Son would belong to you as well because you are his brother. Now why has God done all this? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace being undeserved kindness, that's all it means, undeserved kindness, unearned kindness. God did not wait for me to be qualified for this by how much I would get right on earth. God did not look at all the things I would do wrong on earth and therefore disqualify me. Undeserved, unearned kindness is the reason that I will get all of these heavenly riches. This is huge. The word grace for the person who says, I have done too much wrong to make it in this defectless kingdom. The response of God is, When God chose to create the world, He knew the number of sins you would commit and the type of sins you would commit. And He still chose you. Before you created that, before you participated in those number of sins and those types of sins, before that, He chose you to the praise of His glorious grace. That's, that is the Sort of this triplet found in verse 6, 12, and 14 is sort of the, the theme of the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. And it is what fuels our worship on earth every Sunday week. If you say, well, why do you go to church? Because I don't need to go to church. Uh, well, I don't, I don't come here because need. I come here because I want. I want to praise God for grace that is going to qualify me that I will one day be in a defectless kingdom and that all that is in heaven will be mine, including the throne of Christ. That's why I come. That's why I want the band to do what they did already and they'll do it in just a minute. Just want to just help my soul cry out to God, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is, this is your the purpose for living. And I love how Richard Phillips says this, how God combined. Well, I'll just let him say it. There's really no better way to say it. God has so arranged salvation as to bring us the highest possible blessing and himself the highest possible praise. Amazing. So uh, we live for the praise of God's grace, and yet that's the very thing that satisfies our soul. Because we want to say thank you. So we live for God's praise, and yet there's nothing else we would rather do with our, our life. Now what I want to do in treating this concept of predestination, electing, and choosing 
is I want to eliminate a little bit of confusion because there are some people who say, uh, this is what I've heard that God elects me, he predestined me. What he really did is he looked down the annals of history and he saw that one day I would believe. And therefore, he chose me because he saw me believing. And what I want to do is, and they, the, what they do is, the people who do that abuse accidentally, not enemies, they're just, just wrong interpreters of Romans 8, 29. So I want us to get that right because it's very much a part of this whole conversation. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, this is where they get this, for those God foreknew, those are the ones he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sort of the holy and blameless stuff again, Ephesians 1. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Get that? He's our brother. And those he predestined, he called. There was a time in life where you heard God's voice. And those he called, he justified. You said yes. He declared you not guilty that day. And I love how Paul, he already speaks of it's so certain you're going to make it to heaven. He already speaks in past tense. You've already been glorified. Now, that really hasn't happened yet, but in Paul's mind, it's so certain that it will. He speaks of it in past tense. That is cool. So here's what people do. They look at this verse right here, God foreknew, and they go, aha, see, God looked down, and he knew what I would do, and that's when he chose me based on my choice. Well, that the reason why, just let Scripture interpret Scripture. Here's what God knew you would do in advance. He did know. He did know exactly what you would do. Romans 3, 11, there is no one who seeks God. So you say, well, does God know what our choices? Uh-huh. That's what he knew you would do. So the reason why God's foreknowledge does not mean that he looked down through history and saw that you would one day choose God and therefore that's why he brought you, choose to bring you into his kingdom is when he looked down the, the tunnel of history, he saw you not seeking God, not choosing God. So foreknowledge cannot mean, cannot mean that his omniscience saw you doing well, thinking well, thinking right. You were thinking wrong. I was do, thinking wrong. We weren't cute little orphans when God found us. We were rebels. We were enemies. So foreknowledge does not mean that we were choosing God. Then what does it mean? Well, it means that God had a pre-involvement. Foreknowledge means I was pre-involved with you. I knew you before you knew that I knew you. Like I was friends with you before you were friends with me is what it means. Now, how do we know that? I, this is my favorite biblical illustration of it. Uh, let me just tell you before I, let me just set this up. Jesus is calling his disciples in John chapter 1. And uh, he's you know, a bunch of fishermen. He, about half the disciples were in the fishing. And so he, called, he, he, he finds Philip. And Philip is so excited he goes and tells his friend Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. This one that's spoken of in the Old Testament where God is coming to be the Savior of the earth and going to one day establish a new earth, 
We found the king through whom God's going to do all of this. He's here. Big day. Big day. Look at Nathaniel's response. John 145, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, this is is Nathanael's response. Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's hardly a man who's impressed with this Jesus, right? You see, God looked down and he's impressed with our response. No. No way can anything good come out of that little town. Next day, fast forward 24 hours. When Jesus saw Nathanael the next day, he said of him, Now here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's Jesus playing with this guy, saying, oh, there's the guy who speaks his mind. Watch Nathaniel. Watch Nathaniel. How do you know me? (laughs) Now that's foreknowledge right there. I know you because I knew you yesterday when you were talking without self-control. This is what what foreknowledge means. Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Yesterday, Nathaniel, I saw you. I knew you yesterday. I was beside you yesterday. I was involved with you yesterday. I knew you before you knew that I knew you. That's foreknowledge. It's an advanced knowledge. It's a knowledge that gets involved with somebody before they're aware that God is involved in their life. And what happens when you are aware that God has been involved in your life from before the creation of the world? And Well, you just... It melts your heart. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And this is what we call irresistible grace. When you realize that, that, that Jesus Christ has come from heaven and has known you from the creation of the world and has heard you speak disrespectfully and watched you do all sorts of other things and was involved with you before, And made a choice before you said those things and did those things to come after you and sit down beside you at the fig tree to make sure that you would be pulled from the riot, pulled from the rebellion, pulled from the river. Your heart melts. And you say, you're the son of God. This is why grace is so glorious, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse Six, to the praise of his glorious graces. God doesn't win our hearts with threatening physical force. He just melts them with love. That when we bring to him our worst days and our our, our worst... I was moving my mom 
yesterday from Spartanburg to an assisted living home in, in North Augusta. Long story short, that's just part of the plans, what we're doing. That's, so taking some furniture from here to there, it's not difficult. You just load it up in the back of your truck and you drive to North Augusta. Only, and so I had wrapped a couch a lot with tarp this week because I don't know if you've been aware lately, it's been raining a lot. <laughs> so I know a couch is heavy, it's going to stay put. What I didn't know, you wrap it a lot with tarp and it turns into a dadgum parachute. 68 miles an hour on the interstate, lifted right out of the back of my truck, couch, flying on I-26. I don't know if I've... I had to turn in my man card. Like, I can't, I can't move a couch. I'm telling you, I tell you that story, just tell you, my attitude after that for the next two hours, driving the rest of the time to, I was so angry. It's like none of everything I've been preaching the past two weeks, like, it didn't, like none of it made a difference. I was so evil in my heart over a stupid couch. And Lisa, just so patient with me, like, you know, you know his wife sometimes when you, sh you can't talk right now. <laughs> so I just want to tell you, there's evil in my heart, and the only way, only way that this heart comes to God is he melts me. People say, I don't want God overriding my will. I do. I do. I do. God, please override my will. Please don't let me be me. So Jesus says that's exactly what God does. John 6, 44, no one can come to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up at the last day. And that's simply, all that is just saying our hearts are so hard unless he melts our heart. Unless he melts our heart with his love, we're not coming. The word draw there, comes from a Greek word which means to just, it, it, it's used in secular Greek literature to describe a man who is so famished, his reaction when he sees food. He cannot help himself but eat. That's what you do when you're hungry. That's what you do when you're starving for forgiveness. You hear of God's love and his love melts your heart. I want God to melt my heart. I can't get there by self-will. We're going to see in Ephesians 2 verse 1, we're going to see that in several 
weeks, whenever we get there. The Bible says, before coming to Christ, I'm dead in my sins. I need him to do something I cannot do. What, what do you think Jesus Christ did at the tomb of Lazarus when Lazarus was in that tomb for four days dead? Uh, Lazarus, this is Jesus. Uh, I'd like to give you a, a couple suggestions of why it would be a good idea to, uh, to come out and... Uh, you, there's, you know, you back to work and uh, uh, back to your family of Mary and Martha. But, uh, I, I don't want to be too strong here. Just, I, you know, I, I'm not going to override your will, Lazarus. No. You know what he says? Lazarus, live. And when Jesus Christ speaks, dead people come to life. And I need that because I'm dead evil. And I want him to speak words of life and hope and love to me. And he did yesterday. He got me back on track. And he forgave the, my sins of just making too big of a deal about a flying couch. So all of this raises the question of do we have any responsibility in all of this? And the answer is absolutely. Jesus himself said it in the very same chapter. John 6, 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. So our responsibility is what? Looking and believing. God's responsibility is drawing. God does the drawing, we do the looking. God does the drawing, we do the believing. God does the drawing, we do the trusting. You, you say, well... Well, that's, well, pastor, what, what are you going to do about that? that that's a mystery. That's, that sounds like a problem. Not my problem. That's God's problem. And God says it's not a problem. Not a problem. Let me, let me just give you a, really lovingly, let me just say, when you find something in the Bible that looks illogical, like, you know, your logic does not understand God's logic, just defer. <laughs> say, you know, three-pound brain versus Just assume there's something wrong with your logic when you don't understand how the two mesh. The doctrine of predestination or election is the only thing that provides hope for preaching and missions. When Paul was preaching in the horribly corrupt, sin-loving, sin-saturated city of Corinth, you know what kept him there? This doctrine. Acts chapter 18, Jesus Christ appears to Paul in the middle of the night. Paul is scared to death. Nobody's listening to his sermons. Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent because I have many people in this city. That's the hope of the world right there. That somehow this cowlick, toting, 
flawed, very defective pastor, God's going to use me today for the saving of souls absolutely. Because he has people in this city that he's calling. And if I keep preaching, you keep setting out chairs and giving to new buildings and holding babies and teaching youth and volunteering, standing in parking lots and greeting. You keep doing that. Many, many people in Spartanburg, South Carolina are going to be saved because God has many people in this city. People say, what's the use to preach and witness if God predestines those who come into His kingdom? Here's the answer. Yes, God predestines, God chooses to bring people in, but with equal intensity, He predestines the means of how they will come. And the means of their coming are just as important as those who come. The means, preaching, witnessing, missions, praying, are just as important to God as the people coming. Acts chapter 27 is a great example of the means by which God saves, and the means are important. Paul is on his way to Rome on a ship. There's a terrible storm. The ship is about to sink. Jesus Christ again appears to Paul and says, it is God's will. Nobody on this ship is going down. I mean, all 153 of you are going to live in this terrible storm. But only if you stay on the ship. So Paul tells the sailors this. Acts 27, last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. That's, That's God's will. All will live on that ship. Now here's the means by which they will live. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So just let me ask you a question this morning. You think the ship's important? It's everything. Those people will not be saved apart from that ship. No human being has ever been saved apart from gospel proclamation, ever. The ship was God's means to the accomplishment of His will. Preaching, missions, evangelism, giving of money, prayer. There are people today in villages and cities and slums and prisons and office buildings and neighborhoods and alleyways and hospitals that God is bringing into His kingdom, but He will only bring them in through human, verbal proclamation. Look how, look how this works out. Again, in the book of Acts, right after Paul got saved, Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, I'm going to save a lot of people in Asia, Turkey, Greece, Europe, Rome, through you, Paul. This was was his calling that night he got saved. 
I am sending you to the nations, Acts 26, 17, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a beautiful reminder again of the the mysterious combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because you say, I thought God opened people's eyes. He does. But here, Paul and his preaching opens people's eyes. God opens eyes. The ministry of the church opens eyes. Not a problem to God. God opens eyes. Missionaries open eyes. God opens eyes. Baby holders open eyes. God opens eyes. You witnessing to your family opens eyes. I cannot tell you how vital your praying, your witnessing, your, your, your giving, all of it are God's means. You say, I mean, Paul said, I have become all things to all people that, by God's grace, I might save some. Paul, did you just say that? I might save some? He says, is God comfortable with that for Paul saying, I, I did the saving? Yes, he is. Just like a scalpel would say, I did today's surgery. The scalpel, how vital is it for you who've been cut on or you cut? Scalpel is crucial in surgery, right? It's vital. Can't do surgery without it when it's held by a surgeon. But still, does it take away from the importance of the scalpel? It's vital. Preaching is vital, missions is vital. How about prayer? It too is the chosen means by which God reaches the chosen. In the greatest predestination election, three chapters together of the Bible, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul opens up in Romans 9, my heart is broken that the Jews are missing Christ as their Messiah. My heart breaks. Now he's writing about God's choice how God is working in the nations, in history, according to election and predestination, it's massive. Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Paul said, my heart is broken. What does Paul do with his broken heart? Go to Romans 10.1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and what? Prayer. You have a lost child? You lost friend. You're praying for an unreached people group. The way that God is going to reach them is through your prayers. God says we have not because we ask not. Is prayer effective? We have not because we ask not. That's effective. 
So Paul takes all of his brokenness for his brothers that are missing God, ethnic brothers, and says, I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. And let me close with this. Not only does Paul pray, but he gives every bit of his time and energy and possible because he so understands that God is at work among the nations. Paul devotes all of his life, all suffering, all sacrifices to go and be a usable vessel among the nations where God has been at work from the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 2.10, this is every missionary's catalyst. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure beatings on my back. I endure long nights. I endure the loss of money. I endure sacrifice. I endure everything because I know that God is at work and God will draw his people to himself through my preaching, my giving, my praying, that not one thing I do in the name of Jesus is ever wasted. Two centuries ago, following the Lord's call to missions was almost a guaranteed certainty you would die before the age of 40, often before the age of 30. You left your homeland to go take the gospel to foreign soil, you were going to die young. The mortality rate was incredibly high due to medical reasons and persecution threats that were very real. So most of the missionaries that would leave Europe, travel to the Asia and Far East, they were known as um, the one-way missionaries because they never bought a return ticket because they knew they weren't coming back. They packed their belongings not in suitcases, but in coffins. A.W. Milne lived from 1785 to 1822. He set sail for the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. He was aware that headhunters had martyred every missionary who had come before him. His coffin was packed as well. And for 35 years, he lived among that tribe. And when he died, they buried him in the middle of the village and inscribed on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. Methodist missionary James Calvert lived 1813 to 1892. He committed his life to reaching the unreached people of Fiji. And on his voyage, the captain warned him to return and go back. To Europe, captain said, you will lose your life. You will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert replied, we died before we came here. You get hold of this doctrine that God is in the world from the foundation and before the creation of the world, bringing people to himself. And you will say with the Apostle Paul, I will, do, I will endure everything for the sake of finding the elect. Let's pray.
Father, we tremble. You saw my reaction yesterday on the interstate before the creation of the world. You knew what was going to happen when I traveled. You tested me. I failed. I failed so many tests, thousands. I lay awake last night thinking about all the tests I failed. And it cast me upon the great promise of Ephesians. You chose me before I could do anything good or before I did anything bad. You chose me. You knew me before I knew that you knew me. You knew what I would be, what I would become, what I would not become, and you chose me. I pray today, God, that this great hope-giving doctrine would be embraced on the human side today by somebody believing and trusting because I know you're drawing. I know you're pulling. Would somebody say today, yes, Jesus. Like Nathaniel, you are the son of God, Rabbi. You are the king of Israel king of the world. I pray today, Lord, somebody would go from sitting on these metal chairs to sitting on your throne in heaven, Lord Jesus, having all of their sins erased, covered, acquitted, because you paid for their crimes against your holiness. Oh, God, thank you for taking us out of the river of rebellion, out of the riot. Thank you for saving us before the waterfall of destruction. You have melted our hearts with gladness. You have filled our hearts with hope. And we do pray right now. The only hope For the wayward child, for the blind soul, the only hope, God, is you would knock them off their horse just as you did the Apostle Paul. Send, O God, your blinding light. And your precious thunderous voice and melt their hearts with your love. We trust in nothing today but your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, we pray confidently. Amen.